glad to be able to look at John 15 uh, this morning. Did everybody get a biscuit and some bacon? Hopefully there's some bacon left because I haven't gotten any yet. Um, but if there's not, then there'll be a discussion that we'll have to uh, deal with the ramifications of that and write up whatever we need to write up and discipline whoever we need to discipline. Um, good. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then I'll just begin. How about that? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here. Uh, what a blessing it is to be in this place together. And uh, God, you are gracious and kind to us in so many ways. Father, we're thankful for um, the food you provide. We're thankful for the friendships that you have placed in our life. We're thankful for the opportunities we have to learn uh, more about you together in settings like this. God, we are, we're thankful for this church. I'm thankful for everybody that's here, Father, uh, friends, family um, that have gathered here. And we just ask you this morning to bless our time as we look to your word together. And that's what this is, uh, uh, people who have been redeemed by your grace, friends, uh, gathering together as family to look to your word and see what we, how we can grow and how, can we, how we can better serve you and love you and follow you. So God, we pray all of these things now and um, just bless our time for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I am, uh, this, this Bible has been my Bible for a long time that I use in situations like this, Bible studies. I don't use it on Sunday, but I use it and I love it. In fact, I just, if y'all saw it on Wednesday night, it was falling apart there for a while. And so I ordered some glue um, online and it said book binding glue. And when I sent, when I got the bottle, this is what happens when I order stuff online. It's kind of like how my dad used to go to Sam's. Y'all ever, did y'all remember when Sam's first opened? When Sam's first opened, my dad had to build a whole storage unit out back. Because <laughs> he would go and he would come home with something like 400 paper plates. You know what I'm saying? And it was four of us in the family. And, and uh, it's like the time too, my mom, y'all remember those, uh, I don't know why I'm talking about this, but I'm just happy to be back. Y'all remember those, uh, those those little groups? Uh, what was it? Sh Schwins, Schwans, Swans. Y'all remember that where they brought your food for you and it was frozen? We had to buy. My mom did that one time and they brought it and she found out that we have to go buy now a new freezer. <laughs> and those were the worst. She bought a hundred sausage biscuits, frozen. It's the worst things I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> And so every morning we'd wake up and she'd thaw those things out. And my dad, we'd have paper plates to eat them on and we'd have sausages. I ordered some glue online and the bottle I got was this big. So I've been looking for every book I can find in my office that's got any kind of loose paper and I'm just gluing everything, right? But it's worked for this. And so it's, it's sticking together, but man, I... I can't hardly read this thing anymore because the words are so small. And so it's actually developed within me this crisis. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is my Bible. I don't know what else to do. And so I'm, I'm forgive me because I'm learning how to teach with reading glasses. Y'all see what I'm doing here? So you're going to see these things flying everywhere and doing all this because all I know is for my hands to get loose. 
And so you'll see them. And so if they end up throwing them, if I'm doing this, because what I find with reading glasses is, and my eyesight's weird because when I was in school and reading a lot, I started not being able to see from a distance. And so I had to wear glasses all the time. I could read fine, but in the distance, it was messed up. And so I started wearing glasses and I had to wear contacts and other things and all that. Well, then when I got out of school and started reading less, I mean, I'm, I still read, but I'm talking about significantly less. We're talking, you know, a thousand pages a day there for a while. Then you start reading less and my eyesight corrected. And now I can see really good in the distance and can't see up close. And so as I'm doing this, what I realize is these glasses, y'all, I can't make out anybody's face right now. It doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like I can't see anybody. And so there's times when that may be good. Um, but I'm trying, I'm not, I don't want it to be good. I want to be able to see your face. So I'm trying to figure out how to read, how to look and all that. So I'm asking y'all's patience. Okay. So just be patient with me. It's a learning process, and I recognize that it may be distracting. I don't want it to be, but it just is what it is. Okay? All right, good. Well, that makes me feel old. Is that, is that, is that the definition of trying to, you know, have your cake and eat it too? You know what I'm saying? Like, just go ahead and take it in. I'm old. That makes me feel older. <laughs> reading down there with the half, I have some of those actually. I've tried some of those. In fact, somebody bought me the kind with a magnet right here and they go around your neck and you can do that. And I was like, there's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> not, 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 not that. I, especially since I shaved a beard. I'm not doing that. Anyway, John 15, thank you. John 15 is, I mean, when you get into this section of John, it really is just one glorious passage after another. I mean, some of the great truths in Scripture are found here. And it's not surprising that that's the case, because when we go to John 15, we recognize, as we talked about just a couple weeks ago, this section is one of the most intimate settings in all of the Gospels. I mean, you have different settings where Jesus taught in, right? You have the Sermon on the Mount. You have those things. But this one, this one is with his disciples. This one is the night before or the night he would be betrayed. This is the Last Supper time. So from 13, as he's in that upper room, on until 17 is this time that Jesus has with his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. He knows the next day he's going to the cross. He knows what's coming. And so this is his last moments with them. And so now he's imparting with them. That's why I think this section is so long for us. You know, um, I'm not a big fan I'm not a big fan of red-letter Bibles. Y'all don't get mad at me. I think Jesus did speak 
Sometimes red letter Bibles make us think that Jesus' words are more important than the others. But what I want to say is all of Scripture is God-breathed, right? Jesus' words aren't more important than the other words. Jesus' words are just as important as all the rest, if that makes sense. There's not, the, the Scriptures do not, do not allow us to, to put any teaching above. Paul's teaching is just as important as Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is just as important as Paul's teaching because all of it is given to us by the Holy Spirit to give us authority. Right. And so ultimately, when you look, though, on the red letter, you'll see from 13 on, it's all red. Right. This is Jesus's words given to his disciples in the most intimate of settings. And really, it's been intense. I mean, my goodness, can you think about the moment that Jesus washed his disciples feet? You see the intensity of the moment. Peter says, don't do this. What you doing? And if I don't do it, then you're going to be dirty, Peter. But then wash me head to toe. And then he goes around and does everybody. You see the intensity of that. If you've ever had somebody in a service wash your feet, you know how that feels. There's an intensity to that moment. You have that. Then you add the fact that the whole scene with Judas happened. You know what I'm saying? And so now you've got the whole scene with Judas. He goes and he takes off and he's gone. And now it's just them left. And Jesus looks at them and he gives them some of those glorious truths. I'm the way, the truth. I'm going to prepare a place for you guys. That's where I'm going. And you, you're going to come there. I'm going to bring you back with me. I'm going to take you with me. And you see this intensity of the teaching. And it only gets more intense. In John 15, picking up after 14, obviously, Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit, but he wants to step back to see what the basis of that promise is. And so in John 15, he begins with the seventh of seven I am statements, the last one. And so remember, uh, scripture um, or chapter headings or chapter numbers were not done when John's writing his gospel. They were done later for the purposes of being able to uh, look back quickly in reference to the scriptures. And so uh, really the, the chapters and verses weren't added until about 600, 700 years ago. Um, when Bible study, it will, when the Word of God, because of the printing press, became more prominent, and so more people had it in their hands, and so now it's being used as a tool. So how can me and you reference where to look and what to do? So they started to do it then. So there's nothing sacred about John 15 being right where it is, uh, but it is a good spot because it says if there's any place where it makes sense, it's right here. He says at the end of 14... Rise, let us go from here. And so they're in the upper room and they have the supper together. He washes their feet, he teaches, and now it's time for them to go. And so what we can assume at this point is that the disciples and Jesus rise up and they start out of the upper room, out of Jerusalem. They would travel down through the Kidron Valley and they're heading up toward Gethsemane. And so they're walking as they go. And so now Jesus, which many teachers would do, would teach. I mean, you're walking everywhere, basically, uh, in those days. And so you would teach along the way. You would talk about things along the way. You see this in other places in Scripture, like the road to Emmaus or something, as he taught walking with them. And so Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he begins to teach them. And so as they are walking out, he says, 
I am the true vine. Now, many people uh, are going to say, you know, as you're walking out of Jerusalem, headed through the Kidron Valley, through there, you're walking through vineyards. You're walking through those places. And so Jesus is using this as an opportunity, you know, to say, hey, that's me. Let me talk to you about this. And that's that's probably true. I would say that's probably true. I mean, it's the same way as whenever Jesus told the disciples who were fishing, I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? So he's using this as, as this word picture. But what also happens here is Jesus doesn't choose these images to describe himself. I am the light. I am the bread. I am the door or I am the good shepherd. He doesn't just choose these randomly as word pictures. He is, I believe, pointing to his disciples something clearly to teach them that has already been spoken of in the scriptures. He's connecting himself back to what has already been said in the word of God. So if I am the light, uh, Jesus is doing that in John 8 at the festival of booths. I try not to say booths, you know what I'm saying? Because that's the southern way to say it. And so I'm trying to use proper. He does this at the fe- festival of booths where all of Israel would come back for, to Jerusalem and live in tents around the city, right? And it would remind them of whenever Israel was traveling through the wilderness and going through the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness? During the day, they had a pillar of, uh, of clouds over the temple representing the presence of God. And at night, they had a pillar of fire. Well, whenever they did this, they would light a flame or a fire, a large fire above the temple representing God's presence with his people. Jesus is saying, I am the light. At that moment, looking at that light, they're saying, that's me. Or when he says, I'm the bread, he's talking about after feeding the 5,000, he's reminding them of that moment in the wilderness where God provided bread, come manna, come down. I'm the one that's come from heaven. I am the bread of life that has come. Or that good shepherd, he's looking there and saying that, that Psalm 23 passage, you know, those shepherds or in Jeremiah, not the bad shepherds that lead you. I'm the good one that's leading you into faithfulness. That's me that the Old Testament is talking about. Jesus is connecting himself to the messianic promises of the scriptures, and that's John's purpose. Remember, John says, my job is to write this book so that you know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and you believe in him, you have life. And so here he uses these I am statements to connect himself to the teaching and promises of the word of God. There's something quite clear. Surely he looks and he sees the vineyard. He says, I'm the true vine. But when we look in the Old Testament, we find references to this that I think are important. Let me show you to the one I think is most important. It's Psalm 80. Psalm 80. I put a little marker in my Bible so I can just flip to it. Um, And so that just shows y'all how... Uh, astute and experienced I am. Psalm 80 is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, we find in Chronicles, was one after the, after the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant had been brought back in by David, brought back into the temple. Asaph was the one that David put in charge of the singing in the temple. He was the worship leader, right? And so... Uh, Kevin has written many beautiful psalms like this and and sings them all the time in the office. But uh, Asaph wrote this one. 
And in, in, in writing this, Asaph especially, he, he writes several here in a row through the 70s. And this begins, uh, you know, he's beginning book three in 73. And Asaph is writing, starting in 73. He writes Psalm 50, but then he writes 73, I think through 81. And in writing these, what's at the heart of what Asaph is after is he is writing during the time of the temple being lost. So if you see Psalm 79, for example, he said, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. So if you remember when that was, that was Jeremiah's time. It was that later. He's the, they've come in. They've destroyed the temple. And so the temple has been lost. What are we doing here, God? So he's writing during the time of God's judgment. So he says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, in Psalm 80, uh, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. Joseph got the double portion. We hadn't quite gotten that far in Genesis on Wednesday night, but y'all will. Y'all will know that soon. They're the double portion. Benjamin, this is the tribes of Judah and the southern tribes. Now they have been lost and defiled, the ones that were. So here, restore us, O God. Let your face shine on us that we may be saved, O Lord of hosts. How long? So question that that, uh, Asaph asked several times. How long will you be angry with your people, your people's prayers? Uh, You have fed them like the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. There's great sorrow, in other words. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And then in verse 8, he reminds God of who what he's done. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Remember, Israel had been brought out of Egypt. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it, talking about going into the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. You took a deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sends out its branches to the sea and shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field feed on it. So ultimately, Asaph is drawing the attention here to God. You planted Israel like a vine and it flourished. But now, now because of, we know, the sins of Israel, now the neighbors come in and pluck it. The boars, the wild pigs come in and eat of the vine and it's destroyed. It's been gone. Why did you, why, Lord? He's asking. Judgment has come. You have taken that vine that was that was great and covered all of Israel and that was flourishing, and now it's lost. Now it's lost. Now, that's not the only place we see about the vine, right? We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6, whenever the Lord appears to uh, Isaiah there, and you know how uh, where he, he does the the um, here am I, send me, he shows him his glory. And he says to Isaiah in chapter 6, I believe it's verse 13, he says, now just to show y'all, look at me, I didn't put my little marker on this one, so I'll get there. He says to Isaiah chapter 6, in chapter 6 verse 13, um, 
And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak. That's a, that's a vine or an oak whose stump remains, who has failed the holy seed is its stump. In other words, that vine that was there because of judgment has been chopped down. It's done away with. And so that vine imagery is lost. That tree, that vine imagery is done. So God's judgment comes and it is lost. The vine is chopped down. And so ultimately we see that theme but we see another theme, and it goes back to Psalm 80 in there in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. In other words, we need your help. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Now, ultimately, Asaph, I believe, is calling the Lord to bring back Israel, right? So he's saying to him, you've taken this, but have regard for us. Whenever uh, God spoke to Moses in Exodus, he told Moses to go get my son. Israel was referred to as God's son. He said, go get my beloved son. Go get the son that I love out of Egypt. Call them out. He's not speaking of one. He's speaking of the many. He's saying, go get Israel and get them. That's my son. So he refers to them as his son. And so here again, Asaph is saying, have regard for your son again. Rebuild us, if you will. The son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. In other words, have regard again for your people, your son Israel, by sending your son to redeem them, the man who's on your right hand. And he even refers to him here in Isaiah, I mean in Psalm 80, as the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite monikers for himself. Uh, I oftentimes point to that Son of Man passage is that, uh, to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days bestows upon the Son of Man all of the nations, and that Son of Man will reign forever and ever, and he is there will never be a time that his reign will not be, basically. And so Jesus says, the one who reigns, that's me, the son of man, that's me. But it's also referring to passages like this in Psalm 80. He's the one who will come to reestablish Israel. Remember, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel at the beginning, really Jesus follows, and I think Matthew's doing this purposefully, Jesus follows the history of Israel, if you will, right? I mean, he fo he's following the history of Israel. He's, he's, he's born uh, seemingly out of nowhere, he, just like Abraham was called out of nowhere, the Ur of the Chaldeans. And then when he's born, they hated him from birth, just like the Egyptians hated, hated the uh, Jew Jews from birth and tried to kill them all. They tried to kill him. He has to flee. Where did Jesus flee to? Y'all remember? Egypt. He has to flee into Egypt. When he comes back after, in, after that, you know, what we see in Matthew, it sets it right up to what does he do? He appears before John the Baptist. And what does happens at the, at the baptism of Jesus, right? What happened? Y'all remember the baptism of Jesus? The, the dove descends. And what does the voice say? This, 
Put that emphasis on this, right? Because Jesus, I mean, God said to Moses, go get my son out of Egypt, the one whom I love. And now he's saying it with Jesus standing there, this is my beloved son. This is the one, right? And whom I'm well pleased. This is the one who is going to be true Israel, who will be faithful to me. And after the baptism, where does he go? Immediately for 40 days into the wilderness, just like Egypt, just like Jews came out of Egypt and went immediately into the wilderness for 40 years. And in that, in the wilderness, what does he experience? The temptations to grumble, to complain, to fuss about food, to fuss about privilege, to fuss about place. All of those things he's following along. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the true Israel, the true son that he's pleased in, the one who's come to do what Israel could not do, right? And to follow after the Lord in faithfulness. Israel was judged. Jesus is, is, is reversing that judgment to say he is the son. So now all of the promises that were given to Israel is realized in the true Israel that has come to redeem his people. And so ultimately, we see it. That's exactly what we're seeing here in Psalm 80. That's why all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It's what we see here in Psalm 80. Israel has been judged like a vine. It grew up like a vine. It has been chopped down and it has been judged and dealt with. But God will restore that vine again. And he will bring his son, the one who's at the right hand, to do it. Right? And that's exactly what you see promised here in Psalm 80. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down that may perish. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life that we will carry upon your name. Just like in Isaiah 6, where the, the tree is fell and the stump is there and the stump is that holy seed, Isaiah 11 tells us that from that stump is coming what? A vine. From the stump of Jesse will come again a shoot that will spring up. And that shoot is the hope of all of Israel. And so what Jesus says in John 15 is he's walking with his disciples from the upper room down to the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he knows that what faces him the next day is betrayal and death on a cross, he also knows that his disciples are about to go through the worst time of their life. And he says to them, I am the vine. The promise that God would restore his people again is me. The promise that God would redeem his people. I'm the son that sits at the right hand, Psalm 110. I'm the one who's going to come. I'm the shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse. I'm the one who is going to make everything that was wrong before right again. And all the promises are tied up in me, Jesus is saying. That's me. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And so for you, what you need to know is that all of the blessings of God are tied up in your relationship to the vine, right? So if you turn back to John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does, not, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, a lot in that passage. A couple things we want to note. Obviously, he's saying, I'm the vine, the Father's the vine dresser, that he is particularly caring for this vine, the Father in heaven. This is their, this is their work. This is what they are doing. What is it that they do? They have not only have brought forth this vine, they are caring for it. They're working it. He is keeping it. And that means you're going to feel some things. If you aren't bearing fruit, you'll be cut up cut off and thrown into the fire. If you are bearing fruit, you'll be pruned back, which doesn't feel the best, but you'll become more fruitful, right? So he's saying God is active in this process. He's doing that. And not only, uh, verse 3, some people get lost on verse 3. I think in the context, all he's saying is, uh, where he says, already you become clean for the word I've spoken to you. The vine dresser is always pruning or cutting off. So it's always painful, but Jesus is letting them know it's not always going to be painful in this situation. The Word itself cleanses you. So there's times where the Word is just going to cleanse you. And there's going to be times of pain when you'll be pruned, but there's also times of that refreshing Word. We see that same thing of how uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, how Jesus, of course, is the, the, the groom. And, um, and as that groom, he is preparing his bride by washing her with the water of his word. So she is brought forth without spot or wrinkle. So forth, that's his church, right? So, so forth here, he's not only pruning us, but he is also giving us his word and cleaning us by it. He is caring for his vine. He's caring for it. And ultimately, he says, abide in me and I in you. Now, when you read this, that word abide stands out. I mean, every time you read it, it's just constantly there to abide, to abide, to abide. It is one of those Bible words that we probably do not use in our everyday conversation. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you don't talk, tell me where you abide. You talk to me about where you live or where you go. So it has this deeper meaning. We recognize then that, that it's not just simply uh, uh, to mean to live somewhere or to dwell even. It, it has some deeper meaning, but that deeper meaning we have to kind of hash out. And I love what, uh, what J.C. Ryle says, and I'll start here. J.C. Ryle was, uh, lived 300 years ago, uh, 18th century. Um, he was a faithful expositor of the Word, has uh, one of my favorite little um, compilations that he put together was his commentary called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels, still available. And so I always look, if I'm teaching anywhere from the Gospels, I'll look and see what Ryle says from the Gospels. And he says this. So it's a lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful. To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with Him. To be always leaning on Him resting on Him, pouring out our hearts to Him, and using Him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and our best friend. To have His words abiding in us is to keep His sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the basis of our daily conduct and behavior. I think ultimately he's saying what 
we understand to abide is to have a close. And again, our language is difficult for this, but a relationship with Jesus that's unlike any other relationship that we have. The more special relationship. For this relationship with Jesus is not only one that we want to find, as he says, a habit of constant close communion with him, always leaning in on him, always resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, using him as the fountain of life and strength and our chief companion, our best friend. This relationship to Jesus is different than any other relationship. For this relationship is where we find our life from. Others may help us to flourish. Others may cause us some joy. This one gives us life. And so the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is that we are united with him. Union with Christ is the heart of what it means to be a follower. And so we see that in him. If you read, if you read Paul's letters over and over again, he uses that in him, in him, in him. All of our benefits come from the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. All of our righteousness comes from the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. All of the joys of heaven come from the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. So when you are saved from your sins, you are united with him. So Paul does this. That's, uh, even for us, we don't want to miss the opportunity as good Baptists to say. That's exactly what baptism rec- represents for us. In his death, burial, and resurrection, we are identifying ourselves with Christ. I belong to him. He belongs to me. It is no longer Christ who lives. I mean, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's who we are now. Christ is our identity. He's our righteousness. He's our joy. He's our life. He becomes everything to us. And to abide in him means all of that. The idea here ultimately is we know as a vine, as the nourishments come from the root, go all the way up through the stem and through the fibers, all the way out into the uttermost reaches of that vine. If you see any part of the vine, every single part of it, no matter how far away it might be, is connected to the root, connected to that vine. All of that means if it's not in Christ, we die. To be cut off, is to be cut off from Jesus and to be thrown away, as it says. It's all connected in him. So to abide in him is to rest in him. And what we see in this whole thing, we see the benefits of what it means to abide. Just a few of them you bring. To abide in Jesus keeps you out of judgment. Look at verse 6. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. To abide in Jesus is to keep us out of judgment. To keep us out of judgment. If you don't abide in him, be cut off, thrown into the fire. Imagery of hell itself here. So he says it keeps you out of judgment. Why? Because Jesus has covered your judgment. He's covered that. To not be in Christ is for you to have to give an account for your own sins. But to be in Jesus, Jesus gives the account for you, and you find that freedom there. That's what that union does. To abide in Christ also leads to power in prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The key to obtaining God's blessings and benefits is abiding in Christ Jesus. Is abiding in Christ. 
The key to obtaining is abiding. Now, we need to understand here, it does talk about, and y'all know John likes this. We read it in 1 John. 1 John, he hammers this more so to follow or trust in Jesus or to believe in Jesus is to obey Jesus, right? To love him, to believe in him leads to action. So John is going to teach us in his letter that if you say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar. You say you love God and you don't, you don't follow him, then you're not, you don't love him, right? So our love is going to demonstrate. It goes together. These two things are not opposed to each other. You can't say you love him and not obey him. You can't, you can't do those things. It's, it's, it's sometimes we like to try to divide that out, and I, I struggle with that sometimes because to say that Jesus is your Savior means that you must follow him as Lord, right? We don't get to separate who Jesus is. We don't get, it's, it's the same way I say with the church, right? The church is the body of Christ. So you don't get to have the head without the body, right? You may not like some of us, but you've got to deal with us because of Jesus. Amen? Y'all, y'all, y'all get that later. And if you're not laughing or something right now, you may be the one that nobody likes. I'm just saying that. <laughs> but you don't get to have the head without the body. That doesn't make any sense. We go together. We go together in Christ, and it's the same way. You, if He is your Savior, He is your Lord. That's what 15 is saying. You may not recognize it. You may not always follow like you should, but you better. Because if you don't, you're going to be pruned, cut off, he says. You'll be cut back. It's going to be painful if you don't. But if you abide in him, keep his commandments and follow after him, those two things go together. So keeping his commandments does not allow you to abide. Keeping his commandments is the very fact that you are abiding, right? You're not saved by keeping his commandments. You're not grafted into the vine simply because you keep you. You are in him because you believe in him. And because of that, now you abide and you follow him. And he says, if you do that, abide in him, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We know this, by the way, the benefit of abiding or being united with Christ is, a great benefit is prayer. How do we end every prayer? Amen, right? But what we say before that? In Jesus' name. Recognizing, that's not just... That's not just mere words. That's not what Jesus meant when he talks about the Pharisees just piling and heaping words up together. That is a proclamation by the people of God that recognize the only way we stand before the almighty sovereign God of the universe, the only way we enter into his presence is not by our own merit or what we have accomplished or what we have done. We only come by the merit of Jesus Christ, our Savior, what he has accomplished for us. It's his blood that has purchased us this right and privilege to stand into the throne room of God and make our petitions known. So we come as a recognition humbly before the Lord saying, by the way, we know we are only here in the name of Christ. So in Jesus' name, and whatever you ask in his name, he says, that will be granted to you. That's our authority here. It's in Christ. So he says, whatever you wish, it will be done for you because you're abiding in me. It's a privilege of abiding is that we have the power of prayer. He goes on to say in verse 16, he goes on to say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That abiding, so not only are you abiding, you've, you've been 
appointed to bear fruit. That's what abiding means. And in that process, whatever you ask, it'll be given to you. Another privilege of abiding is that it glorifies the Father. You see this in verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so to prove my disciples. By abiding, the only way we're going to bear fruit is by getting our nourishment from the vine. We get the nourishment from the vine, which is Christ. We bear fruit that brings glory to God, and that's what we do. God receives the most glory in the fact that sinful people have been redeemed, right? God receives the most glory in the fact that we who were once ungodly have been saved and redeemed. We who all of the works of our hand were like wickedness and, 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 and vinegar to a thirsty king, right? All of the works of our hand were nothing before him, but now we have been redeemed in the works that we have now bring glory to his name. God receives the most glory in taking us sinners, redeeming us, saving us, and using us for his name and glory and us producing the fruit. So here he says that only comes from abiding in Christ Jesus. Those who abide are filled ultimately with joy. These things I've spoken to you that my, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abiding allows us, abiding in Christ, allows us to flourish. This is an important understanding. We're looking in, in, in our world, that's what everybody wants to do, right? They don't just want to survive, they want to flourish. They want to have life and have it abundantly. The scriptures teach us clearly that satisfaction comes from the word, that flourishing only comes from abiding in Christ. And why is that the case? Because in that case, we are doing exactly what we were created to do. You see, in our sinfulness, in our sinful pleasures, in our sinfulness, we are going against. We're rebelling against the one who made us and created us. And so in that sinful nature and with those passions leading us and driving us, we will never flourish because we're going against the very nature and reason why we were created. But when we give ourselves to Christ and we believe in the one who came, the true vine who has now flourished and been raised up and we abide in him, now we are doing exactly what God created us to do, find our joy in him, bring him glory through the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that's where flourishing comes. And flourishing does not necessarily mean our circumstances are glorious. Flourishing means that no matter what may happen to us, we recognize our joy is grounded in something that cannot be taken away or removed. Something that is full and complete, that cannot be stolen from us. Our joy is in our union with our Savior, abiding in Him. Now, ultimately, I believe abiding means, and I, if, if we can sum it all up, I'll put those others. I think ultimately abiding means that we rest completely in his love. We rely on his love and we look to him by faith. He says to us, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This reminds us, uh, greater love is no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. You're my friends. Right, go back to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you. 
Jesus' love for us consists of more than just mercy and compassion. I believe this is important because oftentimes when we consider Jesus' love, we think of his grace and mercy, right? And and, and rightfully so. Because we who were once ungodly have been loved, right? We were the unlovable in some ways. That's what makes Jesus' love so great. I'll come to this in a minute, and I I truly mean this, and I don't mean it's 10, 16. I can... See, they give me a whole chapter, and that's, that's bad. You know what I'm saying? So, but what makes Jesus' love so great is not the quantity of people that he loves. Because he's Jesus. So when it says, for God so loved the world, you know what I'm saying? That doesn't speak to the quantity, how many people. That speaks to the quality of people he loves, right? In other words... For God so loved the world is not speaking to the number of people he loves. It's speaking to the type of people he loves. And I'll get to that in just a minute in this passage. What kind of people did God love? He loved the ungodly. He loved the unfaithful. He loved the rebellious. He loved the unlovable that none of us would want to love or look to in this. We always look to in this day. God loved the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, he came for us. What makes God's love so great are the type of people he loved. And I'm talking about me and you. While we were yet unlovable in rebellion to him, he loved us. He loved us. And so Jesus' love is right. That's mercy and grace and compassion. But Jesus teaches us right here, it's more than that. We don't have to look at at Jesus' love in some sense as just mercy and compassion. The Father loved the Son, and Jesus is loving us like the Father loved Him. Right? And so God doesn't look on the Son in pity or in mercy and compassion. He looks on the Son as His beloved one. The one whom He's loved from the beginning. The one whom He he finds His joy in. He looks at His Son as His only begotten. He's not looking at His Son in pity and mercy and compassion. He's looking at His Son as His Son. As a relationship. And so here Jesus says, that's how God loves us. Not just mercy and compassion, but as his own son, just as he loved Christ. And I don't know about y'all, but that, let that sink in for a moment. Chew on that for a little bit. God loves us not just in mercy and compassion, but the fact that he loves us like he loves Jesus. Like he loves Jesus. He says, this is my commandment then. That's how the Father loves me. As the Father has loved me, verse 9, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And the Father delights in the Son, and so the Son delights in his people, his children, those who come as his friends ultimately. And who are his friends? It's his friends that keep his commandments. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And you may say, who are his friends? You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is saying, my love for you is as friends. And everything, you're on the inside. There's no just inner thing here. There's nobody that knows more than you. There's no secret knowledge that you may be looking for. You know it all. 
You know it all. You are my. You're my friends. And no greater love than this is the man's going to lay down his life for his friends. Pointing to the fact of what Jesus is going to do the very next day. He's going to give his life for them. So if you're my friends, keep my commandments. Follow after me. Hear what I say. Abide in my love means to keep the commandments. Jesus does not have a constant frowning face toward us. But he is one of a friend. Jesus lays it out. He gives his sovereignty in this, which I believe should comfort us. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I came after you. I hunted you down. I wanted you to be mine. I'm the one you remember back in the day when I walked up by the sea and said, hey, come with me, follow me. I'm the one that came after you. And so it is he's saying for all of us, you're here because I have pursued you, hunted you down, even even to, to, to be mine. You are here for this reason. So that should comfort us. We rest in the comfort of God's sovereignty in this. But I choose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So not only have I called you out, but I've given you a purpose. Go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. I believe loving one another is the sine qua non of the Christian life here. It becomes the the place that we have to say this is where we begin and where we end. The summation of all of the law of God, the summation of all of his truth is how we deal with one another. How we deal with one another. You say you love God and you don't love your brother, 1 John says, y'all remember what he says there? He has two of those statements. You say you love God, you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. You say you love God and you don't love your brother, you're a liar. This echoes 1 John here. The, the, the thing that you, you must have as a believer is love for one another. That's what's going to show the test. That's where you demonstrate your love for Jesus is how you love each other. You can say you love Jesus, but if you don't love your neighbor, then you don't know that love that Jesus has. You demonstrate your love for Christ and how you love and care for one another. How you love and care for one another. And you're going to need each other. You're going to need each other. I love how Jesus does this. Abide in that love. You love one another. You you stay together in this. You unite around this love. You unite around who I am and following after me. You stay together because he goes straight in to the next. You're going to need each other and you're going to need the love that you have because if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hates you. You see how those two things are put together? Love one another because the world's going to hate you. The world is going to hate you. You need one another because you're going to receive nothing but hate from the outside the community of Christ Jesus. The world is going to hate you. Here is my point. John always uses this term world like we see in John 3, like we see in John 8. He's always using this term world not as the physical earth or as every single person on the earth, but he's using it as the controlling mentality of unbelieving mankind. What are the world's expectations? What are the world's uh, ideologies? What are the world's practices? What are the world's policies? The world is in rebellion to God and everything that he has is in rebellion to him. In fact, John makes it clear that the devil is the prince in the power of this world. 
right? And so John always uses world, not in the sense of the physical earth or in the sense of every single person here, but of the sense of this controlling mentality that's over all of it, that dominates it, and it goes against the Word of God. Jesus does this in John 8. I'm from above, you're from this below. I'm from above, you're from the world, right? And the world has hated me, he says. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples, walking out of the upper room, just washed their feet, shared the Lord's Supper, told them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, headed, told him he's, he's about to depart and go make a place for them, and he's leaving them, right? But in leaving them, he's going to send a helper to them. He's going to send one, and in fact, it's better for him to go and to leave them so he can send the helper in his place, which is the Spirit. And he says, preparing them, love one another. Abide in me. I'm the vine. I'm the one that gives you life. I'm the one that gives you all that you need. And now you have each other as you abide in me. Now you have one another. Love one another because the world's going to hate you. Every single one that he's talking to in this moment, every single one of them will be hated and persecuted by the world for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of these 11, 10 of them would be killed for preaching the gospel of Christ Jesus. One of them will be exiled to prison on an island somewhere, the one writing this gospel. All of them are going to face this. And he says to them, love one another because the world is going to hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Christians who live openly and faithfully and fruitfully in this world for Jesus, the ones who think they can live that way and enjoy the favor of the world are greatly mistaken. If you believe you can live faithfully and fruitfully for Christ Jesus and still enjoy the favor of this world, then you have not read the New Testament. Jesus says, they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. They hate me, they're going to hate you. And, and, and really, I'm, I'm, in some ways, I'm, I'm scared and nervous about the future, and I'm also excited. And here's why I say that. Because we have, by God's favor in some way, lived in a place where we could safely be Christians and be believers, Right? We can safely preach. And that's basically the case now. We may, we may feel some, some open hostility between somebody, mostly bad language, or they may talk bad about us and all this other stuff. But as we move through, even in our own society in America today, as we move through, we're starting to recognize to hold to true Christian values is openly and clearly under disdain by even our leadership. There's fear there, I think. For the, I'm scared for my kids. What are they coming up into? They're going to have to be stronger than I was, right? That was pretty easy for me in some ways, but they're going to be stronger than me because there's this onslaught, this onslaught of, of stuff that's out there that is directly against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to stand up for the gospel means at even an earlier age now, you're going to face the disdain of this world. You're going to face it. 
And I think maybe that's good. Maybe that's what we need. For too long, we've lived fat and happy. You know what I'm saying? For too long, we've, we've lived in this sense that there's peace when there is no peace. For too long, maybe we've lived in this understanding that it's, it's, it's easy, it's going to be safe. And we have tried to walk this fine line of receiving favor from the world and favor from God at the same time, only to realize that if we try to walk this line, the further it gets, you better be able to do a split because you're, you're just getting stretched either way to ultimately you're going to be torn in half. That's not, that's not going to happen, it seems like, anymore. I feel like my job as a pastor is, one, to get all of y'all ready to die, right? Y'all go ahead and get ready to die. Let's talk, about, let's talk about dying and resting in Jesus at the same time. So my job as a pastor is to get all, prepare all of y'all to die. That's good. But my job as a pastor is also to prepare you to face every single day being a faithful believer in Christ and trusting in him against a world that's not going to appreciate it. And in fact, they're going to hate it. That's the words of Jesus. And we've, we've oftentimes kind of given this easy believism for us as believers, you know, just simply without saying, you got to take up your cross daily and follow him. You got to die to yourself. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face trouble. Jesus says it here to his disciples the night before he's betrayed. Whoever hates me hates my father also. He says in verse 22 an interesting statement. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus is not saying that before they were perfect, but since he came, they are no longer perfect and everything now is in trouble. Jesus is saying ultimately here that he is the clearest light that has been possibly given in his works, in his actions, in his teaching. He is the Son of God. He is the clear light seen. And if they reject him, there is nothing else for them. It's all dependent upon Christ. If John 15 teaches us anything, and let me go back to that as I close it out. If John 15 teaches us anything, is that there is nothing available for us apart from Jesus Christ. He says it. Can he not say it more clearly? I'm the vine, you're the branch. Apart from me, what can you do? Nothing. And here he says it again. He says, I came, and because they rejected me, there's nothing for them left. There's no other greater sign that's going to come. There's no other greater word of knowledge that's going to come. There's no other greater one that's going to come. There's no other greater thing that's going to happen. There's nothing else to be looking for. Jesus is it. And if they reject me, then they have nothing left to turn to. And now it's been evidence. It's been seen. If I've not done among them the words that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Christ again fulfilling Scripture. They hated me without a cause, he says, going back to Psalm 35. Fulfilling Scripture, Jesus says this is exactly what the word said. Every single time there comes some idea that, man, this doesn't seem to be working out right. Now, this is working out exactly like the word said. Exactly like it said. Come to end all that. I close out. Verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. He's already introduced the helper there in chapter 14. 
the Helper, the Paraclete, talking about the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. He stands as the one representative of who Christ is and what he's done. The Spirit's role and job is to point us to Jesus and our dependence upon him. To point us to Jesus and our dependence upon him. He will come. In other words, you have one another. The world is going to hate you. So you better have that love that you have together. The world is going to hate you. And I'm going to send someone to help you. The Spirit of God is coming. The Spirit of God will come and he will help you. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now I said verse chapter 16 was in the right spot. I'm divine. Chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 15, chapter break was in the right spot. Chapter 16 is not. Because I think this goes with chapter 15. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. If I can close then with Psalm 80 again. Psalm 80. Turn again, O God of hosts, in verse 14. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But, verse 17, your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What the psalmist is saying is, God, if you restore us by sending your son, the true vine again, we will not back down ever again. The mistake that was made before where we turned away from you, we won't do that again. Send your son. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in chapter 15. I have come. I am the true vine. Abide in me and the hatred of the world cannot shake you again. I'm there with you. Don't back down. I'm with you. Jesus says, I am that vine. I'm here. Abide in me. And you have all that you need. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray together. Father, help us to know this truth deep down into the very recesses of our soul. That in Christ, we have everything we need. And apart from him, nothing. So God, may Christ become the most precious one to us. May we abide in him. Thanking you, God, that there is no judgment. Thanking you that you hear our prayers and you answer them when we abide in Christ. Thanking you, Father, that that love that we know in Christ can spill out from us to our brothers and sisters. So God, may, us, may we love one another. May we rejoice in one another. And may we recognize as witnesses, as your Spirit says, as witnesses of you to a world that is desperate for you, May we go, Father, not to back down or shy away, never to turn away again, but to trust in you and you alone. All of these things, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.